I am going to finish up the hindrances um, tonight by talking about the um, factor of doubt in the variety of ways that we can experience it. I find doubt quite interesting, even fascinating in some ways, because as debilitating as it can be and uh, painful and corrosive, there is another side to it where doubt actually protects us and um, a certain kind of doubt works not to annihilate or, or even weaken our faith, but works to strengthen our faith and, and make our faith our own, not based on someone else's version of what's true. And so doubt can mean many different things. There is a, a quality, you could almost call it a kind of skillful doubt, that in some way is uh, quite lavishly praised within the Buddhist teaching and almost um, cultivated intentionally. It's the kind of doubt that is an insistence on seeing the truth for ourselves, that demands investigation, questioning, wondering, not taking things for granted, not assuming that what we hear is necessarily true, but as the Buddha himself said, putting it into practice. It's testing, it's investigating uh, whatever teaching, beliefs, assumptions are coming our way. And of course the Buddha is so famous for having said, don't believe anything just because I said it, don't believe anything because a great elder has said it. Don't believe anything just because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. Put it into practice and see for yourself. What does it do? Does it lead to the diminishing of grasping and aversion and delusion, that kind of um, tremendous suffering that we get into through those habitual mind states? Does it lead to the amplification, the enhancement of love and compassion, sympathetic joy, states like that. Put it into practice. When I first went to India um, in 1970 and first began practicing in 1971, this, of course, was very much a thread of the presentation. Put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And I found it kind of disconcerting. I had gone to India, I think, more with an idea that somebody would just tell me the way it was, and that would be the relief of all my uncertainty and my confusion about life and uh, my unhappiness. I sort of didn't want to have to put it into practice to see for myself if it was true. I just wanted to um, kind of be ardent about belonging somewhere to some belief system. But it's so essential to the whole path and, and practice of the Buddha's teaching. Put it into practice. See for yourself if it's true. And I often say, because I, I feel very strongly that 
I find that almost a, a kind of breathtaking view of human nature, that the Buddha is saying that as a human being, one is capable of finding out for oneself what's true, that we can see through the superficiality of life and its glibness and um, the things we take for granted and what we've been taught. And we can see through our self-limiting notions of not being capable and feeling that we have to so desperately rely on someone else. Instead, we can see for ourselves what's true. It's an amazing picture of human capacity. And that underlies really everything in the Buddha's teaching right from the moment when we say we take refuge in the Buddha, as we did in the beginning of this retreat. What we are taking refuge in, in some way, is the ability of a human being to live a life of such complete wisdom, great understanding, and enormous compassion. And when we look at the Buddha, it's not as though to say, wow, far out, you did it but it says something about us and who we are and what we might be capable of too. So we say in some way when we look at the Buddha, we are looking not just at the Buddha, but we're looking right through the Buddha to ourselves. And it's not just oneself as a kind of special person, like I am great, you know, and everyone else is kind of lost but to understand that this is a universal capacity to grow, to understand our lives, to be whole, to be free. So when we look at the Buddha, it's really about looking at ourselves, and when we look at ourselves, it's really about looking at all beings and the nature of life, which may be quite covered over and hidden and distorted, but it's there, this capacity to see the truth for ourselves. So we doubt, we question, we wonder, we investigate in affirmation of that ability. We hear a possibility, a path, a methodology or a technique, and we put it into practice with that kind of eye of discernment. Okay, what's this doing? Not every second, of course, um, because that would be maddening. Am I free yet? But giving it enough time to, to evolve. We question, we wonder, we doubt, and we have to. In the Buddhist tradition, when faith is talked about, um, meaning, literally meaning the placing of our hearts, the offering of our hearts, also having that sense of confidence, of connection, connection to deeper truths, connection to a bigger picture of life, being able to see through the immediate circumstance we may be facing, to underlying truths. It's talked about, faith is talked about not as a commodity or a um, kind of thing we either have or we don't have, and if we don't have enough or we don't have the right kind, then we're going to be condemned. But rather it's talked about as a process, 
as an unfolding process where we might start in one place and through a growth in understanding, through a growth in self-respect, in, through a growth in wisdom, we grow to a very different kind of faith or a different level of faith. The first kind of faith that's usually talked about um, is called bright faith. And it's likened in the teachings to falling in love. Sometimes it's described as sitting in a room, like a dark, enclosed room, the door shut, feeling very confined and and limited and and, uh, held in. And then somehow the door swings open. And there's this moment of such incredible joy and upliftment, like, wow, things can look really different. Tomorrow actually doesn't have to look necessarily like today. Or maybe the self-image which has been governing my life seemingly forever doesn't have to prevail. The door has opened. We don't know what lies on the other side. But we have that sense of openness, of possibility. That's bright faith. So sometimes that happens because we've met a teacher or encountered a teaching or read a poem or been to an incredible place. There are lots of different reasons why that door will swing open. I once went to a conference um, in Cleveland and um, a couple of years ago, and uh, the conference was... Um, most memorable to me uh, for the afternoon I snuck out and went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, when I went there, I went to the uh, Bruce Springsteen exhibit, and there was a letter on the glass wall of the, the exhibit that Bruce Springsteen had written when Bob Dylan had been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he talked in the letter about the first time he ever heard Bob Dylan sing. And I don't remember how old Bruce Springsteen was in the the letter and the anecdote he's describing, but at some age, he was driving in the car with his mother, and Bob Dylan's music came over the radio. And he said, it felt like a giant boot had come down and kicked open the door of my mind. And then he said, and then my mother said, that man can't sing. (laughs) But I actually love that description. It felt like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. That's bright faith. Suddenly the world is bigger. And amazing things might be possible. So that's considered the beginning of kind of a journey of faith in the Buddhist tradition. And while it's a beautiful and important state, it is just the beginning for a couple of reasons. It's considered quite um, unstable. One is that it's usually dependent on an external condition, the teacher, for example. And so because it's not grounded in our own experience of the truth, 
we can, in fact, be kind of fickle. We might meet one teacher one day and think, oh, that's amazing. I'm going to follow that person and meet another teacher another day and get all kind of enraptured again and say, well, forget that other person. I'm following this person. And it's, it's very unsteady in that way. It's also kind of a dangerous state in some ways if it doesn't develop and grow because since it is so dependent, since it feels, first of all, so fantastic, um, and yet is so dependent on an external circumstance of some kind or another, we might get quite attached to that feeling and just not want to rock the boat because we don't want to lose our proximity or endanger our proximity to what seems to be the source of that great feeling. So we don't perhaps want to question or voice uncertainties or misgivings we might have. We might not want to point out things that don't seem quite right to us. And so that's the place in which what's called bright faith is said to degenerate into what we kind of commonly, colloquially called blind faith, where that beautiful feeling has become an object of attachment. We just don't want to lose it, and we will reject anything that seems to be threatening that. So rather than go down that road, what the Buddha is talking about is having begun perhaps with bright faith, working to have that develop into what is called verified faith, something that is grounded in ourselves and our own experience of life and what we've seen to be true, not so dependent on another, on something external. And oddly enough, the path from bright faith to verified faith is one of questioning, of investigating, of finding out for ourselves what is true. That means doubting with the right kind of doubt, not taking things for granted, insisting on seeing how real they are when we live them, when we breathe life into them. What does it really do? Put it into practice. And so in that sense, that particular kind of doubting really becomes a a tremendous enhancement for the power of faith. It doesn't take away from it. It doesn't threaten it. It only strengthens it. Of course, there are other kinds of doubt that aren't so skillful. And this is what's talked about when we talked about doubt as a hindrance. It's not just this uh, intent kind of questioning. It's actually something else. Doubt, in that sense, in the unskillful sense, is sometimes called skeptical doubt where we're not so likely to let something evolve to speak to us, to reveal to us whether it has something genuine to offer us or not, we're more likely to step aside from it in order to judge it. And so that kind of doubt might perhaps be understood as a kind of cynicism, where we are not willing to take a risk to put ourselves into trying something out, to allowing it to unfold, but we have already determined in some way that it's not going to do anything for us. 
and so we move away. That's a very different kind of, of doubting. Maybe my favorite example of this comes from the Buddhist time, where in the legend of the Buddha's enlightenment, they say, of course, he became enlightened sitting under a tree, and then spent 49 days in the immediate vicinity of the tree, seven days each doing seven different activities. He did seven days of walking meditation, seven days of happily contemplating the law of dependent origination, something like that. Um, I think very charmingly, uh, they say he spent seven days gazing in gratitude at the tree for having sheltered him in his night of uh, practice. So seven times seven equals 49 days. And at the end of 49 days, they say he got up from the area of the tree and went went to walk to a, a nearby town. And the first person in the story, which is so famous, uh, who came upon him was so struck by his radiance and the, the power of it that he came up to him and he said, who are you? What are you? Are you a human being? Are you a, a deva, a celestial being? Who are you? And it said in response, the Buddha said, I'm awake. I'm an awakened one. And the guy said, maybe, and he walked away. (laughs) Now, being from New York, (laughs) I kind of appreciate that first part, like, "Eh, maybe, you know, like, prove it. Why be gullible? You know, that's an amazing thing to say. I'm awake. You know, you shouldn't take that for granted. But I often think, like, what if he hadn't walked away? You know, what if he'd stayed around and asked some questions like, what does it mean to be awake? Are you sure you're awake? How did it happen? Can anybody do this? Is this just for you? Could I do that? What would it look like? How do I do it? That would have been a very different kind of questioning. So that kind of, um, what I now call in honor of that story, that kind of walk-away doubt doesn't really serve us, obviously, because we just cut off from so many opportunities as though they were were not worth pursuing. And there's a kind of uh, powerful feeling in that, but it's very ephemeral. You know, I don't need that. That wouldn't do anything for me. Um, as though we were we were complete and whole, standing there on the sidelines being cynical. There's a, a kind of sophistication to that, it seems, although it's very shallow, because we don't have to try. We don't have to start into something with a sort of earnestness and letting go and um, unmasking that beginning something often involves. So even though it may feel like it's doing something great for us, in fact, it's quite debilitating because we're continually walking away 
from different opportunities. Doubt means indecision. It's sometimes likened to a traveler standing at a crossroads, just not knowing where to go, and not having kind of the, the verve to say, I'm going to go there, even if it's a mistake. Let me at least find out for myself that it was a mistake, instead of standing here till the end of time, trying to know, to be lost in endless speculation. I often tell the story about my early period of practice where I didn't really doubt the efficacy of the teachings at all. Somehow, from the first day I entered my first intensive meditation retreat, I had some sense that there was truth here for me, that this was right. I had great doubt about my own ability to live it, to manifest it in any way. And as time went on, I had increasing doubts about which actual practice to pursue. My first teachers were either Burmese or had studied in Burma. And so they taught that particular uh, kind of method, very similar to what we're doing here, or some variation of that. And I really felt um, challenged by it, and at the same time, I felt the rightness of it. I felt that it was really important. And then, you know, there I was living in India, and one day, actually on a train, somebody showed me a picture of this Tibetan teacher, this Tibetan Lama. And I was very struck by his face, which I found really extraordinary. And so I decided to go meet him, which I did. And I went off to the other end of India, um, and I met him. And I decided to study with him for a while. So that was like a completely different methodology, a whole different... Uh, system of metaphysics, and I got really confused. I just didn't know what to do. And in effect, I did nothing, because when I would sit down to meditate, instead of sort of open-heartedly undertaking any practice, I would just sit and think, which practice should I do? I don't know which practice to do. Should I do this one or should I do that one? I don't know. Those people look really enlightened, so maybe I should do that one because if they've been doing that one, they've been getting a lot out of it. But then, you know, I don't know them that well. I know these people better. Maybe if I knew those people as well as I knew these people, you know, I wouldn't think they were so enlightened. So maybe I should do this practice. No, maybe I should do that practice. I don't know. And so I wasn't really getting anything from my practice because, in truth, I wasn't really practicing. I was just thinking about which practice to do. And uh, in some ways, even more discouraging, I wasn't really getting that much from my teachers because whenever I was with my Burmese teachers, instead of asking them about the system of thought that they had spent an entire lifetime devoted to learning, I would ask them what they thought about Tibetan practice, which they actually didn't know anything about (laughs) because of this, you know, kind of large historical divide. And 
um, whenever I was with my Tibetan teachers, exactly the same thing. Instead of asking them about what they had spent so much time studying and, and deepening, I would ask them about the very thing they knew least about, which was Burmese practice. And so I wasn't really getting anything much from my practice because I wasn't practicing, and I wasn't getting anything much from my teachers because I was asking them about the things they knew the least about rather than the things they knew the most about. And then one day I said to myself, just do something. Just choose one and do it. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. But that movement from the kind of endless speculating to making something real was the essential movement. And it is, in fact, the essential movement for all of us. Rather than holding these things in a kind of um, absolute view, we have to think about taking these values and making them real. I could have considered forever which practice to do and not done any practice at all. But what is the actual transformation of our hearts? It's through being present with our experience in a radically different way. So what will support that? What will help that? How can we make it real? In that example, you can sense the debilitating effect of speculative doubt because it's also very seductive. It's kind of interesting to sit there and consider things that one actually doesn't know anything about oneself, you know. But to think, oh, yeah, you know, I think that one's better than that one. Well, how would I know, having done neither? But it's easy, you know. It's much easier than having the kind of humility and patience to actually put something into practice. So doubt can be very seductive. It can be very time-consuming. And it's not always unreasonable. You know, there's a lot of truthfulness to it. There's a lot of importance to it. When it becomes a kind of habit of mind like that, and it's repeatedly keeping us from making an experiment, from trying from making things real, that's a very different thing. You know, it's not serving us anymore. It's really ruling us in some way. It becomes how we actually are. And we see that, I think, very often in um, almost how difficult it is to be simple. Now, when I first went to India, I assumed that the meditation techniques that I would be given would be very kind of fantastic and exotic and esoteric and maybe sort of supernatural. And I was quite disappointed when the very first instruction I got was, you know, sit down and feel your breath. I thought, this is stupid. You know, what's this about? Or all the emphasis on uh, mindfulness of the body, you know, to be in touch with the sensations of 
um, direct experience. I thought, what? You know, nothing much there. Or even worse, in some way, was when I began intensively doing loving-kindness practice. Um, When I went to Burma in 1985 and and did loving-kindness for about three months, intensively, that also included some of the kind of preliminary reflections that are often done to lay the groundwork for loving-kindness to more easily arise, one of which is to look at the good in others and oneself. If we look at the good, it is taught, then there will be a certain sense of connection that is established. Whereas if we fixate on and obsess about what is negative, then there will just be a sense of estrangement. So it's taught to actually actively make some effort to look at the good, whether we're looking at ourselves or we're looking at others. And this isn't done to instill a kind of you know, foolishness, like a, a deluded state where we pretend everything is just fine and there are no problems and there's no pain and there's no conflict. It's not meant to be that way at all, but it's believed that if we can establish some sense of connection through looking at the good, then we can honestly and directly also look at the negative or the difficult, but without such a, a tremendous sense of separation or that that gulf of self and other or us and them. It's like a different stance is established, even as we quite honestly see what is is off or what is wrong. So there I was in Burma, and I was given that instruction to look for the good in people. And my very first thought was, I'm not going to do that. I thought, that's what stupid people do. They just go around, they look for the good in people. I thought, I don't even like people who do that, you know? Like, go around looking for the good. I'm not going to do that. But as I usually tell this story, I was very far from home in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, I don't feel like it. You Generally speaking, you do it. So I did it. And I found it amazing, you know, in just the way they described. Not that I entered this kind of fugue state of stupidity, you know, and pretended everything was perfect in all of those ways. But uh, in a very different way, just the way it was described so that there was some sense of connection and almost a kind of compassion that came for the very genuine difficulty instead of so much resentment and alienation. It's hard to be simple sometimes, you know, and allow ourselves to try these things when our kind of habitual, doubtful, 
somewhat cynical demeanor would not actually allow it to be too easy. But it's very powerful, nonetheless. It's important that our questioning, our doubting, be coming from a place of confidence in ourselves, in our ability to see the truth, and not from the kind of place of fear that it will never happen for us. Because that sort of fear that somehow we are excluded, it's not going to work, we can't do it, we can't change, we can't be happy, whatever it might be, that kind of fear usually gets disguised as a kind of doubt. So it's almost like a, um, a child who's being told that they can have a toy and with some bravado, they say, I didn't want it anyway. You know, that fear that we can have it, no one else is keeping it from us, but that internal kind of feeling that we can't have it will disguise itself as bravado. It's not worth doing. It's not worth having. It's a stupid practice. Why would anybody want to do that? So to to see, in a way, the transformation of our doubt from an unskillful kind to a more skillful kind demands that kind of, of honesty to look clearly at the layers of feeling that may be interwoven with the state of doubt. What is going on there? rather than just uh, believing it and using it as a kind of armor to not have to experience something. What is going on there? Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe it is a wrong approach for you. Maybe it's not so wise, actually. But you can know that from paying attention. The kind of tremendous confidence in our ability to see for ourselves, to understand that distinction, is not the same thing as conceit or arrogance at all. It's something that's very fundamental. We can understand the truth for ourselves. Okay, what's actually going on here? When we experience something like doubt very strongly, that kind of wondering, it's important to try to see right into it, to see into the heart of it. What is being layered here? What is being unspoken but still may be very prevalent here? And simply to know. Sometimes what we need to do is just create a kind of structure for ourselves so that we honor the need to investigate, to analyze, to assess, to figure out for ourselves if something's right. And at the same time, we don't have to do it all the time. So 
there can be tremendous benefit, like with me, when I said, just do something. Just do one practice. It's not a lifetime commitment. It might be that it's really just a nine-day commitment. See what happens, you know? It could be that it's a commitment for an hour, like me. Look for the good in someone. To give yourself the opportunity not to be so swayed by doubt all the time, but to, in a way, it's almost like saying, not quite now, not just yet. I remember once in Burma, um, in that period of practice, I was doing walking meditation, and I was uh, feeling this tremendous strain and tension. And so much so that I actually stopped, and I said, okay, what's going on? And I realized that I was trying to do the practice and make it work, instead of just doing the practice and seeing if it worked, or letting it work. And I realized that in so many ways, I and we can try too hard. And part of that over-efforting is that sense of constantly checking. Is it working? I don't know. Is that good? Maybe it's not good enough. Maybe this could be better. You know, which is like... um, a continual manipulation of our experience instead of saying, I'm going to do this and just see what happens. To instill some of that greater sense of ease, a teacher like Saida Upanditu, who's my Burmese uh, teacher, would say things like, you just sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. Let the nature of things take care of the rest. Let the truth of things take care of the rest. You just do what you have to do. Don't do anything more than that. Just what you have to do. You just show up, you be present, be as aware as you can, begin again, and then begin again, and then begin again. You don't have to try to achieve anything. You don't have to try to get anything. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. Let it unfold, because it's not going to happen any faster because we are assessing and wondering and and trying to make it happen at our own rate. To be able to surrender in that way, to say, okay, I'll do what I need to do. Let's let the laws of nature take care of the rest. I sometimes say one of my um, great spiritual experiences was many years ago, I was in New York City and checking into a hotel And I was going up to my room in the elevator when I realized I was carrying my very heavy suitcase in my arms and I had the brilliant thought, put it down. The elevator will carry it for you. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So... We can let ourselves be simple. Just do the practice. Don't do anything more than the practice. Don't try to make the Dharma true. Just let it go. Plant the seeds. Let nature take its course. 
That's all we need to do. One of my early teachers once used this um, example to describe practice. He said, imagine you're hitting a piece of wood with an axe, trying to split it. And you hit it 99 times, nothing happens. Then you hit it the 100th time, and it breaks open. He said, usually we start wondering, what did I do that 100th time that was so different? Was my stance different? Was I holding the axe differently? But really, according to him, it took every one of those 99 blows to weaken the fiber of the wood. And then the 100th blow, it just broke open. He said, it doesn't feel very good, of course, number 23, number 24, number 25, number 26, nothing is happening. But that is really what we need to do for that 100th blow to actually make a difference. It's not going to be making a difference just in isolation. So we need to be able to carry something through. And I usually, when I think of that example, um, I actually extend it because I don't think the just the simple mechanical act of hitting the wood um, is what makes for the breakthrough. It's the fact that we hang in there and that we are persevering and it's our heartfulness and our willingness to try and it's our, our balance and our, our uh, even our sense of humor as number 24 and number 25 and number 26. It's our loving kindness for ourselves. Um, it's our vision of possibility. All of that is what actually is the breakthrough, not something that happens in the wood. So we need to find the supports that will allow us to do that because it's going to take that. If we have the habit of doubt, then in some way we have to use it so that it's not seen as such a detriment, but so that it it doesn't hold us back, it doesn't keep us stuck, it doesn't pull us away from our endeavor. You know, to realize the the importance of it and the uh, the positive aspect of it. To recognize the essential nature of having a, a faith in ourselves and our own ability to see. Knowing that that faith or that confidence combined with constant questioning that insists on our seeing the truth for ourselves will have us transcend the limitation of doubt. When we use doubt not to move further away, but to come closer and say, I am going to check this out for myself. I'm going to see what's true. That's really a, a, a useful and appropriate kind of doubt. There's a saying in the Chinese tradition, to understand the nature of water, look at the waves. So if we want to understand the nature of our minds, 
we look at all the waveforms that come our way, one of which is doubt. So rather than being afraid of it or um, angry about it or uh, lost in it, any of our normal ways of relating, we work toward that very particular place which is being mindful of it. To see doubt as doubt is very important. We may need to create space in our minds to sit with the feeling of doubt, you know, not to shun it and also not to follow it out. Because if we follow it out every time it comes up, that would be a lot of activity. You know, if you actually left this retreat every time you had the thought to leave, only maybe in downtown Barrie or somewhere nearby to have the wave pass and go, whoops, I'm already gone. I guess I have to go back. Um, That would be kind of unfortunate, you know, because it gets tiring to continually act out um, those kind of doubts. To create space to actually feel it, to look at it, to look at the nature of it, to understand it is really very helpful. I said um, to some of the groups I was meeting with that I was sitting here once, and one of my teachers, um, Manindraji, was here, And this wasn't about doubt, it was about anger, but it's really the same principle. And I was experiencing a lot of anger, and this is what he said to me. He said, this is how you should be with your anger. This is how you should work with your anger. He said, imagine a spaceship has landed on the front lawn, and these Martians come out, and they come up to you, and they say, What is anger? He said, that's how you should be with your anger. Not it's right or it's wrong or I hate myself because I'm such an angry person or I'm going to do this vengeful thing and then that vengeful thing and then I'm going to completely destroy them. But like, what is anger? What does it feel like? What's its nature? What's its flavor? What is anger? And just so with doubt, actually with all of the hindrances. But when doubt arises, it takes a tremendous understanding to see doubt as doubt and not just be in downtown Barry before you know it. And then see if you can find that place that is interested in the nature of doubt. What is this? What does this feel like? See if you can see its changing nature, its composite nature. What else is going on there? It's a very intricate state often with a lot we can learn from. And if we do that, then we have used the state which can be so so debilitating and so difficult and it actually will... Um, enrich our practice. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on February 6, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.